Section B of Liber Amoris or the New Pygmalion by William Hazlitt. Part 1 from Letters to the Same to A Proposal of Love, and Part 2 Letters to C.P. to Another Thought before Letter 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Duncan. Liber Amoris by William Hazlitt. Part 1. Letters to the Same. February 1822. You'll scold me for this, and ask me if this is keeping my promise to mind my work. One half of it was to think of Sarah, and besides, I don't neglect my work either, I assure you. I regularly do ten pages a day, which mounts up to thirty guineas worth a week. So you see, I should grow rich at this rate, if I could keep on so. And I could keep on so, if I had you with me to encourage me with your sweet smiles, and share my lot. The Berwick smacks sail twice a week, and the wind sits fair. When I think of the thousand endearing caresses that have passed between us, I do not wonder at the strong attachment that draws me to you. But I am sorry for my own want of power to please. I hear the wind sigh through the lattice, and keep repeating over and over to myself the lines of Lord Byron's tragedy. So shalt thou find me ever at thy side, here and hereafter if the last may be. Applying them to thee, my love, and thinking whether I shall ever see thee again. Perhaps not, for some years at least, till both thou and I are old. And then, when all else have forsaken thee, I will creep to thee, and die in thine arms. You once made me believe I was not hated by her I loved, and for that sensation, so delicious was it, though but a mockery and a dream, I owe you more than I can ever pay. I thought to have dried up my tears for ever the day I left you, but as I write this they stream again. If they did not, I think my heart would burst. I walk out here of an afternoon, and hear the notes of the thrush that come up from a sheltered valley below, welcoming the spring, but they do not melt my heart as they used. It is grown cold and dead. As you say, it will one day be colder. Forgive what I have written above. I didn't intend it, but you were once my little all, and I cannot bear the thought of having lost you forever. I fear through my own fault. Has anyone called? Do not send any letters that come. I should like you and your mother, if agreeable, to go and see Mr. Keene in Othello, and Miss Stevens in Love in a Village. If you will, I will write to Mr. T. to send you tickets. Has Mr. P. called? I think I must send to him for the picture to kiss and talk to. Kiss me, my best beloved. Ah, if you can never be mine, still let me be your proud and happy slave. H. To the same. March, 1822. 
you will be glad to learn I've done my work, a volume in less than a month. This is the reason why I am better than when I came. And another is, I have had two letters from Sarah. I am pleased I have got through this job, as I was afraid I might lose reputation by it, which I can little afford to lose. And besides, I am more anxious to do well now. I wish you to hear me well spoken of. I walk out of an afternoon, and hear the birds sing, as I told you, and think, if I had you hanging on my arm, that for life how happy I should be, happier than I ever hoped to be, or had any conception of till I knew you. But it can never be. I hear you answer in a soft, low murmur. Well, let me dream of it sometimes. I am not happy too often, except when that favourite note, the harbinger of spring, recalling the hopes of my youth, whispers thy name and peace together in my ear. I was reading something today about Mr. Macready, and this put me in mind of that delicious night when I went with your mother and you to see Romeo and Juliet. Can I forget it for a moment, your sweet modest looks, your infinite propriety of behaviour, all your sweet winning ways, your hesitating about taking my arm as we came out till your mother did, your laughing about nearly losing your cloak, your stepping into the coach without my being able to make the slightest discovery, and oh, my sitting down beside you there, you whom I had loved so long, so well, and your assuring me I had not lessened your pleasure in the play by being with you, and giving me your dear hand to press in mine. I thought I was in heaven. That slender, exquisitely turned form contained all of heaven upon earth. And as I folded you, yes, you, my own best Sarah, to my bosom, there was between us, you say, a tie between us. You did seem to me, for those few short moments, to be mine in all truth and honour and sacredness. Oh, that we could always be so! Do not mock me, for I am a very child in love. I ought to beg pardon for behaving so ill afterward, but I hope the little image made it up between us, etc. Brackets. To this letter I have received no answer, not a line. The rolling years of eternity will never fill up that blank. Where shall I be? What am I? And where have I been? Close brackets. Written in a blank leaf of endymion. I want a hand to guide me, an eye to cheer me, a bosom to repose on, all of which I shall never have, but shall stagger into my grave old before my time, unloved and unlovely, unless S.L. keeps her faith. But by her dove's eyes and serpent shape, I think she does not hate me. By her smooth forehead and her crested hair, I own I love her. By her soft looks and her queen-like grace, which men might fall down and worship, I swear to live and die for her. A Proposal of Love Brackets Given to her in our early acquaintance. Close brackets. Oh! 
If I thought it could be in a woman, brackets, as if it can, I will presume in you, close brackets, to feed for I her lamp and flames of love, to keep her constancy in plight and youth, at living beauties outward, with a mind that doth renew swifter than blood decays, or that persuasion could but thus convince me, that my integrity and truth to you might be confronted with the match and weight of such a winnowed purity in love. How were I then uplifted? But alas, I am as true as truth's simplicity, and simpler than the infancy of truth. Troilus and Cressida Part 2 Letters to C. P. Esquire Bees Inn my good friend, here I am in Scotland, brackets, and shall have been here three weeks next Monday, close brackets, as I may say, on my probation. This is a lone inn, but on a great scale, thirty miles from Edinburgh. It's situated on rising ground, brackets, a mark for all the winds which blow here incessantly, close brackets. There is a woody hill opposite, with a winding valley below, and the London road stretches out on either side. You may guess which way I oftenest walk. I have written two letters to S. L., and got one cold, prudish answer, beginning, Sir, and ending, From yours truly, with best respects from herself and relations. I was going to give in, but have returned an answer, which I think is a touchstone. I send it you on the other side to keep as a curiosity, in case she kills me by her exquisite rejoinder. I am convinced from the profound contemplations I have on the subject here and coming along, that I am on the wrong scent. We had a famous parting scene, a complete quarrel, and then a reconciliation in which she did beguile me of my tears. But the deuce so one did she shed. What do you think? She cajoled me out of my little Bonaparte as cleverly as possible, in manner and form following. She was shy the Saturday and Sunday, brackets the day of my departure. So I got up in dudgeon, and began to rip up grievances. I asked her to show how she came to admit me to such extreme familiarities the first week I entered the house. If she had no particular regard for me, she must do so, or more, with every one. If she had a liking for me from the first, why refuse me with scorn and wilfulness? If you had seen how she flounced and how she looked, how she went to the door saying she was obliged to me for letting her know the opinion I had always entertained of her. Then I said, Sarah, and she came back and took my hand and fixed her eyes on the mantelpiece. She must have been invoking her idol then, if I thought so. I could devour her, the darling, but I doubt her. So I said, there is one thing that has occurred to me sometimes as possible, to account for your conduct to me at first. There wasn't a likeness, was there, to your old friend? She answered, No, none, but there was a likeness. I asked to what? She said, To that little image. I said, 
Do you mean Bonaparte? She said, Yes, all but the nose. And the figure? He was taller. I couldn't stand this, so I got up and took it and gave it to her, and after some reluctance she consented to keep it for me. What will you bet that it wasn't all a trick? I'll tell you why I suspect it, besides being fairly out of my wits about her. I told her mother, half an hour before, that I should take this image and leave it at Mrs. B.'s, for that I didn't wish to leave anything behind me that must bring me back again. Then up she comes and starts a likeness to her lover. She knew I would give it to her on the spot. No, she would keep it for me, so I must come back for it. Whether art or nature, it was sublime. I told her I should write and tell you so, that I parted from her confiding, adoring. She is beyond me, that's certain. Do go and see her, and desire her not to give my present address to a single soul, and learn if the lodging is let, and to whom. My letter to her is as follows. If she shows the least remorse at it, I'll be hanged though it might move a stone, I modestly think. See before part one, first letter. N.B. I began a book of our conversations, I mean mine and the statues, which I call Liber Amoris. I was detained at Stamford and found myself dull and could hit upon no other way of employing my time so agreeably. Letter two. Dear P. Here, without loss of time, in order that I may have your opinion upon it, is little yes and no's answer to my last. Sir, I should not have disregarded your injunction not to send any more letters that might come to you, had I not promised the gentleman who left the enclosed to forward it the earliest opportunity, as he said it was of consequence. Mr. P., called the day after you left town. My mother and myself are much obliged by your kind offer of tickets to the play, but must decline accepting it. My family send their best respects, in which they are joined by yours truly, S. L. The deuce a bit more is there of it. If you can make anything out of it, brackets, or anybody else, brackets, I'll be hanged. You are to understand this comes in a frank. The second I have received from her, with a name I can't make out. And she won't tell me, though I asked her where she got franks, as also whether the lodgings were let, to neither of which a word of answer. Blank, blank, blank is the name on the frank. See if you can decipher it by a red book. I suspect her grievously of being an errant jilt, to say no more. Yet, I love her dearly. Do you know that I am going to write about that sweet rogue presently, having a whole evening to myself in advance for my work? Now, Mark, before you set about your exposition of the new apocalypse, of the new Calypso, the only thing to be endured in the above letter is the date. It was written the very day after she received mine. By this she seemed willing to lose no time in receiving these letters, of such sweet breath composed. 
if I thought so. But I wait for your reply. After all, what is there in her but a pretty figure? And that you can't get a word out of her. Hers is the Fabian method of making love and conquests. What do you suppose she said the night before I left? H. Could you not come and live with me as a friend? S. I don't know, and yet it would be no use if I did. You would always be hankering after what could never be. I asked her if she would do so at once, the very next day. And what do you guess was her answer? Do you think it would be prudent? As I didn't proceed to extremities on the spot, she began to look grave and declare off. Would she live with me in her own house, to be with me all day, as dear friends, if nothing more, to sit and read and talk with me? She would make no promises, but I should find her the same. Would she go to the play with me sometimes, and let it be understood that I was paying my addresses to her? She could not, as a habit. Her father was rather strict, and would object. Now what am I to think of all of this? Am I mad or a fool? Answer me that, Master Brook. You are a philosopher. Letter 3 Dear friend, I ought to have written to you before, but since I received your letter, I have been in a sort of purgatory. And what's worse, I see no prospect of getting out of it. I put an end to my torments at once, but I am as great a coward as I have been a dupe. Do you know, I have not had a word of answer from her since. What can be the reason? She offended at my letting you know that she wrote to me, or is it some new affair? I wrote to her in the tenderest, most respectful manner, poured my soul at her feet, and this is the return she makes to me. Can you account for it, except on the admission of my worst doubts concerning her? Oh, God! Can I bear, after all, to think of her so, or that I am scorned and made a sport of by a creature to whom I had given my whole heart? Thus has it been with me all my life, and so will be till the end of it. If you should learn anything good or bad, tell me, I conjure you. I can bear anything but this cruel suspense. If I knew she was a mere abandoned creature, I should try and forget her. But till I do know this, nothing can tear me from her. I have drank in poison from her lips too long. Alas, mine do not poison again. I sit and indulge my grief by the hour together. My weakness grows upon me, and I have no hope left, unless I could lose my senses quite. Do you know, I think I should like this, to forget. Ah, to forget there would be something in that. To change to an idiot for some few years, and then to wake up a poor wretched old man, to recollect my misery as past and die. Yet, oh, with her, only a little while ago I had different hopes, forfeited, for nothing that I know of. Blank, blank, blank. If you can give me any consolation on the subject of my tormentor, pray do. The pain I suffer wears me out daily. 
I write this on the supposition that Mrs. Blank may still come here, and that I may be detained some weeks longer. Direct to me at the post office, and if I return to town directly as I fear, I will leave word for them to forward the letter to me in London, not at my old lodgings. I'll not go back there, yet how can I breathe away from her? Her hatred of me must be great, since my love of her could not overcome it. I have finished the book of my conversations with her, which I told you of. If I am not mistaken, you will think it very nice reading. Yours ever. Have you ever read Sardana Palus? How like the little Greek slave Mira is to her. Letter 4 Brackets Written in the winter Brackets My good friend, I received your letter this morning, and I kiss the rod not only with submission, but gratitude. Your reproofs of me and your defences of her are the only things that save my soul from perdition. She is my heart's idol. And believe me, those words of yours applied to the dear saint, to lip a chaste one, and suppose her a wanton, were balm and rapture to me. I have lipped her, God knows how often, and oh, it's even possible that she is chaste, and that she has bestowed her loved endearments on me, brackets her own sweet word, brackets, out of true regard. That thought, out of the lowest depths of despair, would at any time make me strike my forehead against the stars. Could I but think of the love, honest, I am proof against all hazards. She, by her silence, makes my dark hour, and you, by your encouragements, dissipate it for twenty-four hours. Another thing has brought me to life. Mrs. Blank is actually on her way here about the divorce. Should this unpleasant business, brackets, which has been so long talked of, succeed, I think I should become free. Do you think S. L. will agree to change her name to blank? If she will, she shall. And to call her so to you, or to hear her called so by others, would be music to my ears, such as they never drank in. Do you think if she knew how I love her, my depressions and my altitudes and my wanderings and my constancy, it would not move her? She knows it all, and if she's not an incorrigible, she loves me, or regards me with a feeling next to love. I don't believe that any woman was ever courted more passionately than she has been by me. As Rousseau said of Madame du Hupto, forgive the allusion, my heart has found a tongue in speaking to her, and I have talked to her in the divine language of love. Yet she says she's insensible to it. Am I to believe her, or you? You, for I wish it, and I wish it to madness. Now that I am like to be free, and to have it in my own power to say to her without a possibility of suspicion, Sarah, will you be mine? When I sometimes think of that time I first saw the sweet apparition, August the 16th, 1820. 
and that possibly she may be my bride before that day two years. It makes me dizzy with incredible joy and love for her. Write soon. Letter 5 My dear friend, I read your answer this morning with gratitude. I felt somewhat easier since. It showed your interest in my vexations, and also that you know nothing worse than I do. I cannot describe the weakness of mind to which she has reduced me. This state of suspense is like hanging in the air by a single thread that exhausts all your strength to keep hold of it. And yet, if it fails you, you have nothing in the world else left to trust to. I am come back to Edinburgh about this cursed business, and Mrs. Blank is coming from Montrose next week. How it will end, I can't say, and I don't care, except as regards the other affair. I should, I confess, like to have it in my power to make her the offer direct and unequivocal, to see how she'd receive it. It would be worth something, at any rate, to see her superfine airs upon the occasion. If she should take it into her head to turn round her sweet neck, drop her eyelids, and say, Yes, I will be yours. Why then, treason domestic, foreign levy, nothing could touch me further. By heaven, I dote on her. The truth is, I never had any pleasure like love with any one but her. Then how can I bear to part with her? Do you know I like to think of her best in her morning gown and mop-cap? It is so she oftenest came into my room and enchanted me. She was once ill, pale, and had lost all her freshness. I only adored her more for it, and fell in love with the decay of her beauty. I could devour the little witch. If she had a plague-spot on her, I could touch the infection. If she was in a burning fever, I could kiss her and drink death as I drank life from her lips. When I press her hand, I enjoy perfect happiness and contentment of soul. It is not what she says and what she does. It is herself that I love. To be with her is to be at peace. I have no other wish or desire. The air about her is serene, blissful, and he who breathes it is like one of the gods so that I can but have her with me always. I care for nothing more. I never could tire of her sweetness. I feel that I could grow to her, body and soul. My heart is hers. Letter 6 Brackets Written in May Brackets Dear P. What have I suffered since I parted with you? A raging fire is in my heart and in my brain that never quits me. The steamboat, brackets, which I foolishly ventured on board, brackets, seems a prison house, a sort of spectre-ship moving on through an infernal lake without wind or tide, by some necromantic power. The splashing of the waves, the noise of the engine gives me no rest, night or day. No tree, no natural object varies the scene, but the abyss is before me, and all my peace lies weltering in it. I feel the eternity of punishment in this life, for I see no end of my woes. The people about me are ill, uncomfortable, wretched enough, 
many of them, but tomorrow or the next day they reach their place of their destination, and all will be new and delightful. To me it will be the same. I can neither escape from her nor from myself. All is endurable where there is a limit, but I have nothing but blackness and the fiendishness of scorn around me, mocked by her, brackets the false one, brackets, in whom I placed my hope, and who hardens herself against me. I believe you thought me quite gay, vain, insolent, half mad, the night I left the house. No tongue can tell the heaviness of heart I felt at that moment. No footsteps ever fell more slowly, more sad than mine, for every step bore me farther from her, with my soul, and every thought lingered. I had parted with her in anger, and each had spoken words of high disdain, not soon to be forgiven. Should I ever behold her again? Where go to live and die far from her? In her sight there was Elysium, her smile was heaven, her voice was enchantment, the air of love waved around her, breathing balm into my heart. For a little while I had sat with the gods in their golden tables. I had tasted all the earth's bliss, both living and loving. But now paradise barred its doors against me. I was driven from her presence where rosy blushes and delicious sighs and all soft wishes dwelt, the outcast of nature and the scoff of love. I thought of the time when I was a little happy, careless child, of my father's house, of my early lessons, of my brother's picture, of me when a boy, of all that had since happened to me, and of the waste of years to come. I stopped, faltered, and was going to turn back once more to make a longer truce with the wretchedness and patch up a hollow league with love when the recollection of her words i always told you i had no affection for you steeled my resolution and i determined to proceed you see by this she always hated me and only played with my credulity till she could find someone to supply the place of her unalterable attachment to the little image a very little better today. Would it were quietly over, and that this misshapen form, brackets made to be mocked, brackets, were hid out of the sight of cold, sullen eyes. The people about me even take notice of my dumb despair and pity me. What is to be done? I can't forget her, and I find no other like what she seemed. I should wish you to call, if you could make an excuse and see whether or no she is quite marble, whether I may go back again at my return, and whether she will see me, and talk to me sometimes as an old friend. Suppose you were to call on M. from me, and ask him what his impression is that I ought to do. But do as you think best. Pardon, pardon. P.S. I send this from Scarborough, where the vessel stops for a few minutes. I scarcely know what I should have done, but for this relief to my feelings. Letter 7 My friend, the important step is taken, and I am virtually a free man. Blank. What had I better do in these circumstances? 
I dare not write to her. I dare not write to her father, or else I would. She has shot me through with poisoned arrows, and I think another winged wound would finish me. It is a pleasant sort of balm, brackets, as you express it, brackets, she has left in my heart. One thing I agree with you in, it will remain there forever, but yet not very long. It festers and consumes me. If it were not for my little boy, whose face I see struck blank at the news, looking through the world for pity and meeting with contempt instead, I should soon, I fear, settle the question by my death. That recollection is the only thought that brings my wandering reason to an anchor, that stirs the smallest interest in me, or gives me fortitude to bear up against what I am doomed to feel for the ungrateful. Otherwise, I am dead to everything, but the sense of what I have lost. She was my life. It is gone from me, and I am grown spectral. If I find myself in a place I am acquainted with, it reminds me of her, or of the way in which I thought of her. And carved on every tree, the soft, the fair, the inexpressive she. If it is a place that is new to me, it is desolate, barren of all interest, for nothing touches me but that what has a reference to her. If the clock strikes, the sound jars me. A million hours will not bring back peace to my breast. The light startles me. The darkness terrifies me. I seem falling into a pit without a hand to help me. She has deceived me, and the earth fails from under my feet. No object in nature is substantial, real, but false and hollow, like her faith on which I built my trust. She came, brackets, I knew not how, brackets, and sat by my side and was folded in my arms a vision of love and joy, as if she had dropped from the heavens to bless me by some especial dispensation of a favouring providence, and to make me amends for all. And now, without any fault of mine, but too much fondness, she has vanished from me, and I am left to perish. My heart is torn out of me, with every feeling for which I wish to live. The whole is like a dream, an effect of enchantment. It torments me, it drives me mad. I lie down with it, I rise up with it. I see no chance of repose. I grasp at a shadow. I try to undo the past and weep with rage and pity over my own weakness and misery. I spared her again and again, brackets, fool that I was, brackets thinking what she allowed from me was love, friendship, sweetness, not wantonness. How could I doubt it, looking in her face, and hearing her words like sighs breathed from the gentlest of all bosoms? I had hopes, I had prospects to come, the flattery of something like fame, a pleasure in writing, health even would have come back with her smile. She's blighted all, turned all to poison and childish tears. Yet the barbed arrow is in my heart. I can neither endure it nor draw it out, for with it flows my life's blood. I had conversed too long with the abstracted truth to trust myself with the immortal thoughts of love. That S. L. 
might have been mine, and now never can. These are two sole propositions that for ever stare me in the face, and look ghastly into my poor brain. I am in some sense proud that I can feel this dreadful passion, it gives me some kind of rank in the kingdom of love. But I could have wished that it had been for an object that at least I could have understood its value and pitied its excess. You say her not coming to the door when you went is proof. Yes, that her compliment is at present full. That is the reason she doesn't want me there, lest I should discover the new affair, wretch that I am. Another has possession of her. Oh, hell! I am satisfied of it from her manner, which had a wanton insolence in it. Well, I might run wild when I received no letters from her. I foresaw... I felt my fate. The gates of paradise were once opened to me, and I blushed to enter, but the golden key of love. I would die, but her lover, my love of her, ought not to die. When I am dead, who will love her as I have done? If she should be in misfortune, who will comfort her? When she is old, who will look in her face and bless her? Would there be any harm in calling upon M to know confidentially if he thinks it worth my while, to make her an offer the instant it is in my power? Let me have an answer and save me, if possible, for her and from myself. Letter 8 My dear friend, your letter raised me for a moment from the depths of despair but not hearing from you yesterday or today, brackets as I hoped, brackets, I have had to relapse. You say I want to get rid of her. I hope you are more right in your conjectures about her than in this about me. Oh no, believe it. I love her as I do my own soul. A very heart is wedded to her, brackets, be she what she may, brackets. And I would not hesitate a moment between her and an angel from heaven. I grant all you say about my self-tormenting folly. But has it been without cause? Has she not refused me again and again with a mixture of scorn and resentment, after going the utmost lengths with a man for whom she now disclaims all affection? And what security can I have for her reserve with others, who will not be restrained by feelings of delicacy towards her, and whom she has probably preferred to me, for their want of it. She can make no more confidences. These words ring for ever in my ears, and will be my death-watch. They can have but one meaning. Be sure of it. She always expressed herself with the exactest propriety. This was one of the things for which I loved her. Shall I live to hate her for it? My poor fond heart, that brooded over her with the remains of her affections, as my only hope of comfort upon earth, cannot brook this new degradation. Who is there so low as me? Who is there that besides, brackets I ask, brackets, after the homage I have paid her and the caresses she has lavished upon me, so vile, so abhorrent to love, to whom such an indignity could have happened? When I think of this, brackets, and I think of nothing else, brackets, it stifles me. I am pent up in burning, fruitless desires, which can find no vent or object. 
Am I not hated, repulsed, derided by her whom alone I love, or ever did love? I cannot stay in any place, and seek in vain for relief from the sense of her contempt and her ingratitude. I can settle to nothing. What is the use of all I have done? Is it not the very circumstance, my thinking beyond my strength, my feeling, more than I need to about so many things, that has withered me up, made me a thing for love to shrink from and wonder at? Who could ever feel that peace from the touch of her dear hand that I have done? And is it not torn from me for ever? My state is this that I shall never lie down again at night, nor rise up in the morning in peace, nor ever behold my little boy's face with pleasure while I live, unless I am restored to her favour. Instead of that delicious feeling I had when she was heavenly kind to me, and my heart softened and melted in its own tenderness and her sweetness, I am now enclosed in a dungeon of despair. The sky's marble to my thoughts. Nature is dead around me, as hope is within me. No object can give me one gleam of satisfaction now, nor the prospect of it in time to come. I wander by the seaside, an eternal ocean of lasting despair, and her face are before me. Slighted by her, on whom my heart by its last fibre hung, where shall I turn? I wake with her by my side, but not as my sweet bedfellow, but as the corpse of my love, without a heart in her bosom, cold, insensible, or struggling from me, and the worm gnaws me, and the last sting of unrequited love, and the canker of a hopeless, endless sorrow. I have lost the taste for my food by feverish anxiety and my favourite beverage, which used to refresh me when I got up, has no moisture in it. O oh, cold, solitary, sepulchral breakfasts, compared with those which I promised myself with her, of which I made when she had been standing an hour by my side, my guardian angel, my wife, my sister, my sweet friend, my Eve, my all, and had blessed me with her seraph kisses. Ah, what I suffer at present only shows that what I have enjoyed. But the girl is a good girl, if there is goodness in human nature. I thank you for those words, and I will fall down and worship you, if you can prove them true, and I would not do much less for her that proves her a demon. She is one or the other, that's certain, for I fear the worst. Do let me know if anything has passed. Suspense is my greatest punishment. I am going into the country to see if I can work a little in the three weeks I have yet to stay here. Write on the receipt of this, and believe me, your unspeakably obliged friend. To Edinburgh Stony-hearted Edinburgh, what art thou to me? The dust of thy streets mingles with my tears and blinds me city of palaces or of tombs, a quarry rather than the habitation of men. Art thou like London, the populous hive with its sunburnt, well-baked, brick-built houses, its public edifices, its theatres, its bridges, its squares, its ladies and its pomp, its throng of wealth, 
its outstretched magnitude, and its mighty heart that never lies still. Thy cold grey walls reflect back the leaden melancholy of the soul. The square, hard-edged, unyielding faces of their inhabitants have no sympathy to impart. What is it to me that I look along the level line of thy tenantless streets, and meet perhaps a lawyer like a grasshopper chirping and skipping, or the daughter of a highland laird, haughty, fair, and freckled? Or why should I look down your boasted Prince's Street, with the beetle-browned castle on one side, and Carlton Hill with its proud monument at the further end, and its ridgy steep of Salisbury Crag, cut off abruptly by nature's boldest hand, and Arthur's seat overlooking all like a lioness watching her cubs? Or shall I turn to the far-off Pentland Hills with the Craig Crook nestling beneath them? where lives the prince of critics and the king of men, or cast my eye unsated over the Firth of Forth, that from my window of an evening, brackets, as I read of Amy and her love, brackets, glitters like a broad golden mirror in the sun, and kisses the winding shores of kingly Fife. Oh, no, but to thee, to thee I turn, north, Berwick Law, with thy blue cone rising out of the summer seas, for thou art beacon of my banished thoughts, and dost point my way to her, who is my heart's true home. The air is too thin for me, there is not the breath of love in it, that is not embalmed by her sighs. A thought. I am not mad, but my heart is so, and raves within me, fierce and untamable like a panther in its den, and tries to get loose to its lost mate, and fawn on her hand, and bend lowly at her feet. Another. O oh, thou dumb heart, lonely, sad, shut up in the prison-house of this rude form, that hast never found a fellow but for an instant, and in the mockery of thy misery, speak, finding bleeding words to express thy thoughts, Break thy dungeon gloom, or die pronouncing thy infelice's name. Another. Within my heart is lurking suspicion, and base fear, and shame, and hate. But above all, tyrannous love sits throned, crowned with her graces, silent and in tears. End of section B of Liber Amoris by William Hazlitt.